Welcome to Bible and Stuff, a podcast about the Bible and stuff. I'm Glenn. And I'm Tanner. And today we are joined by Dr. Peter Gurry and Dr. John Mead. Yeah, we are. Uh, they are located at Phoenix Seminary and they are the directors of Text and Canon Institute. That sounds fancy. It is fancy. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. <laughs> Great to be here, guys. So would you actually mind starting off uh, just telling us a little bit about yourselves, where you're from, educational background, kind of the general? Sure. I'm from Massachusetts originally and uh, grew up in a Christian home, so exposed to the Bible pretty early on. So Bible and stuff. It's a great, uh, <laughs> it's a great podcast name. Uh, went to college in South Carolina, went to seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, in 2012, I graduated with my PhD in Old Testament studies from there and uh, wound up teaching Old Testament and Hebrew at Phoenix Seminary uh, starting in the summer of 2012. That's awesome. So um, married to Annie, and we have four kids, and uh, we've been married for over 16 years now. So you are a very busy man. There is never a dull moment in the Mead household. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just so we're clear for people listening, that is John and uh, then yes. Peter... If you want to... Sure. So I um, also grew up in a Christian home and uh, had the privilege of being able to take uh, biblical Greek in high school as my foreign language. I avoided Spanish, and so I took that (laughs) instead. And that kind of led me on a path to uh, what I do now by way of Moody Bible Institute, where I studied biblical languages there, then went on to Dallas Seminary uh, and did more there, and then culminating at a PhD uh, at Cambridge in England, and uh, then we came out here to Phoenix, where I've been teaching for about three years. Uh, I'm from Cincinnati originally. Go Bengals, I guess. Um, we wish they would go somewhere. <laughs> number, um, number one draft no. pick. Number yeah, one that's draft true. Pick. We are number one. Yes, We're number one. Um, so, uh, and then uh, I've got five kids. We just had our fifth right over Christmas break, and so we're also busy yeah yeah you're a brave man i see i really wanted i really wanted to go the five route when we were first married and then we had one and i was like one's good (laughs) one is a good round but then you had Uh, so we we made it to two and now i'm like i think i'm at a hard stop yeah Yeah, i think we're in the same place with that one we'll see if our wives agree but that's where that's where we're at well awesome um yeah, so to get the show started, uh, we want to let everybody know kind of what Texan Canon is, what's, what's your mission, um, and you know, what, how did the program come to be? Yeah. Do you want to answer the history little, sure. little history piece? History is short, so I'll give it. Yeah. Um, so John has been teaching here at Phoenix Seminary for about eight years, and I've been here for about two and a half years, going into my third year. And uh, one of the things we realized when we were... Uh, both here was that we kind of had a unique thing going in that most uh, evangelical schools, if they have an expert in in the area of the text or the canon, that is how we got the Bibles, mm-hmm. sorry, how we got the books of the Bible or how we got the text mm-hmm. of those books, they tend to have an expert in either Old Testament or New Testament. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know of any other school that had uh, an expert in both. And yeah. so we just kind of put our heads together and then said, hey, why don't we put our expertises together too? And so we did. So we started uh, the Texan Canon Institute about a year ago. Is that right? Yeah, I think we launched like basically today, I yeah. think, the last year. Yeah. So, yeah. Crazy. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of taken off. Uh, we're pretty excited about it. 
Yeah. Absolutely. So what does that look like? Um, now that we know the history, now that we know how that came to be, what do you guys do? Um, yeah. How do you guys help people learn about those things? Right. So we like to think we've got three pillars mm-hmm. or three, three objectives. Uh, we want to support uh, excellent scholarship. Come back to that in a moment. And then we want to train the next generation of Bible scholars and then we want to uh, supply quality resources to the church. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of organ. There might be other institutes tied to uh, graduate schools and seminaries, uh, hitting at sort of any one of those areas. Yeah. Uh, but not usually at all three. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so we'll see. We're either cutting edge or we are crazy. <laughs> so, so, so that's uh, is yeah. a little bit of a risk there. But because yeah, right. mo- most might err on that, so, say supporting <laughs> academic excellence, uh, and not even worry about trying to provide a direct route uh, yeah. from mm. scholarship down to the church and culture at large. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So we, we, have, we, we feel we have a service and a, and a burden for, for both there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so we can talk about some of our events later, but, but basically the first tier is, you know, uh, Peter and I try to publish uh, at, at some pretty high levels in academia. Peter just uh, co-edited a great book with um, one of our friends, Elijah Hickson, called Myths and Mistakes, mm-hmm. which was an IVP yeah. academic. It's been getting a lot of buzz. I've seen that a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so that's a great resource, uh, both for academics and for pastors, uh, I would say. Um, uh, a year or two ago, I published a book on the biblical canon list from early Christianity. Mm. Uh, mostly academics seem to be using that, but... But again, to kind of show what did early Christians think about the canon? Yeah. Uh, so, so again, that was with Oxford University Press. So you know, so again, trying to publish at some higher end, mm-hmm. uh, sure. uh, you know, tiers there. But and then we we try to mentor and train the next generation through what we call the fellowship uh, scholarship program, and uh, that is a scholarship worth up to ten thousand dollars for a THM student. Okay. who has a, a, a desire to go on and study in these areas of canon and, and textual criticism and these sorts of things. Um, so, so a fellow who you know, fills out the application and, and, and gets accepted will, will, will receive that scholarship. So we think of ourselves as kind of pouring ourselves into that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of that grows out of our own experience. We're both here doing what we're doing because we had really good mentors, not only who were uh, you know, academically gifted, uh, and skilled, but also cared about the church and Definitely. cared about the questions of faith, of course, right? Yep. Yep. So um, we've seen the influence of of our academic mentors on us and keeping us grounded in the faith, and we thought, hey, we need to do something to, to pass that yeah. on. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, we really appreciate that last bit, and the it was the third point in what you covered earlier about helping bring these kinds of resources to the church, because mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. even though we're in in the game now <laughs> of uh, putting biblical resources stuff like that online, mm-hmm. uh, we always see that as just an extension of what people should and could and can learn mm-hmm. at their own local right. church. Mm-hmm. Right, totally. So, so probably the greatest expression of that last piece for us is our upcoming Sacred Words Conference. February twenty first, twenty second. We're going, man. We're oh, you are. We're yeah. going. Oh, that's right. right. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so All right, you already sold. Move on. <laughs> Next topic. Move on. <laughs> At least two people. Yeah, will that's be there. right. That's right. Well, fantastic. Um, so yeah, so that uh, that's an all church conference. 
Um, mm. That's not for scholars. Uh, we'll have scholars there teaching, uh, but they are uh, or have been instructed to uh, bring it down to the lay level. So and I, I think they're very it. equal to the yeah. task. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and we're, one of the things we're really excited about with that is not only bringing them here to Phoenix, so t- as, as a local um, resource for churches here in the in the valley, but we've we've tapped some um, some scholars who are regional. So from California mm-hmm. and, and a friend of ours who's down in Tucson, mm-hmm. and the goal of that is to kind of introduce folks in Phoenix to some people who maybe aren't in town but are close, right? Or yeah. closer, yes. right? So yes. we're excited about that as well. Yeah, that yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So I guess uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk to you guys about is or ask because. It's a big part of what we're trying to do um, missionally and sounds like you guys too. Why do you think it's important for Christians to know some of the history of the Bible, the, the text, the canon, all, all of that? Um, where's the importance in that? Yeah, that's great. Uh, I've been doing a lot of talking. You want to go? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'll just give, one, I'll start with very, kind of very broad. One is, um, I was reminded today of a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, um, good philosophy needs to exist simply to respond to bad philosophy, right? Mm. And so that's part of it, is as long as there are bad explanations for how we got the Bible, we're going to need good ones, right? And there's a lot out there. And there are plenty of really bad ones out there, right? Um, Especially in popular media and things. Things are just completely nuts. Um, But they get a hearing for whatever reason, right? Um, So part of it is is simply that, like we just need to have a a credible reply sometimes to the crazy claims that get made about how we got the Bible, right? So what would you say are some of the the craziest or maybe the most common Mm -hmm. misunderstandings or or claims that you've heard that are just not out there? Yeah, so, oh man. Well, do the the canon in Nicaea. Yeah, canon in Nicaea is a big one. So so probably right, but in in its most popular widespread form, right? You know, you've got Dan Brown, right, and the Da Vinci Code's Mm -hmm. view of how the four Gospels were chosen, right? Mm -hmm. And how all the other Gospels were rejected, right? And so Mm -hmm. on. So, And And there's a vote. Usually there's some kind of plan. No, there was a vote from the council, but but Brown takes it even further, right, because Constantine, the emperor at the time, right, uh, the Roman Empire makes, you know, assembles this council. And so basically, Dan Brown's telling of the story in the Da Vinci Code is uh, Constantine, a, a pagan Roman emperor, actually publishes the Bible that we use today, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's probably in its most popular form. And uh, so one, one day, a couple years ago, I was really, really curious, like, did he just totally make this up? <laughs> or is there actually <laughs> some kind of a link to, to, between the, the formation of the canon of Scripture and the Council of Nicaea. And so you start digging around and you realize, oh, oh, okay, so he didn't make this up. Like there actually was like a a little bit of a legend, for lack of a better term, uh, in the ninth century AD in some Greek manuscript, someone tells a miracle story for how uh, the bishops at Nicaea prayed over a table of books. Oh, yeah. And um, and they and after they were done praying, they, they think they stepped out and then they came back in and the canonical books. This is at Nicaea, by the way. There, yeah. this is the story. Uh, all the canonical books were on the top of the table and the apocryphal books were underneath. Okay. Now this story gets picked up in Voltaire's Encyclopedia of Philosophy in the uh, in the 17th century, 
and um, or, or 18th century. I always get confused whether it's the 18th or 17th century. But Voltaire, from there, um, it becomes kind of this credible story. Yeah. And this is how I think uh, this uh, this idea winds up in many many popular hmm. channels today. So we could probably you know search Twitter right now for a relationship between Nicaea and the canon, and something would come up like posted like an hour or two ago. Like it's wow. fascinating. How <clears throat> it would be from times. John Mead, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. So so I wrote this up, you know, uh, for a blog post for for Phoenix Seminary, just to kind of show where that myth came from. Yeah, and uh, but. Clearly, uh, if you're doing history, you realize that there's not an ounce of historical credibility to the story because there are discussions about the canon both before Nicaea and after yeah. amongst early Christians. So if the big council in 325 had settled the issue once and for all, you wouldn't expect further disputes to happen right. afterwards. But in fact, there are many mm, after yeah. 325. So it just... And, and and none of the Nicene fathers who who give us lists of books like Athanasius or or even pro Nicene fathers like Jerome later Jerome mm-hmm. uh, actually like appeal to the authority of Nicaea for a canon. You see, okay. So if there was a declaration or some kind of decree made, you'd expect them to mention that, right? Yeah, we have right. but they don't. Yeah. So, so are you also saying that the woman in the books is not a direct descendant of Jesus? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was so I was gonna say yes. (laughs) I was say yeah. Let's get that out there. Wait, what? (laughs) Um, But I was gonna say about the Da Vinci Code before I was probably early high school or before I I really started reading my Bible and really started. Taking my faith seriously, I thought that was a super interesting book, and and I think back, I, th- I think back now, and I feel like it's probably just because he took um, this stuff that I didn't really understand, really not anyone was teaching me, and made it seem really interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Now later, I grew up to realize most of what he said wasn't true, <laughs> right. but uh, I, I just think that's an area that a lot of Bible teaching and historical teaching can grow. It's just, mm-hmm. okay, let's mm-hmm. see how we can mm-hmm. tell the true story, right. but make it as interesting as we possibly can while staying true to the facts. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you start really considering which books the early church thought was canon, uh, I mean, for the most part, they're the books that wound up in our own canons, you yeah. see. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are some disputes along the way, but... Um, but books that we call the Gospel, you know, of Thomas or something like this, it does not seem like there was any real no. uh, yeah. push for recognizing that book as canon. For yeah. example, yeah, it's so. uh, proverbially pro- proverb. No, no, hold on. Metaphor- <laughs> I'll go with metaphorically. There's no way I'm going to get that word out. It's metaphorically under the table. Yeah, that's oh. right. There it is. There it is. Under Nailed the table. It. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that's great that's right uh, yeah this is the stuff we edit up now <laughs> there's no chance that makes it in there's no chance <laughs> awesome so do, are there any other um examples you can think of that are our forefront that you could share with us too sure yeah there's uh, a couple with on the new testament side when it comes to the text of the new testament so when we talk about the text we're asking about 
the manuscript copies that we have. Um, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament in Greek, just in Greek. And they have disagreements among them because they're copied by hand. Uh, and for other reasons, sometimes people change them intentionally. And so, you know, that's a really important apologetic question that comes up for people is, can we trust the text of the New Testament? And one of the popular misconceptions that's out there about that is um, there's this old stat that gets cited a lot about being able to reconstruct the entire text of the New Testament from the early church fathers' citations of it. So the early church fathers were writing commentaries sometimes or, or just writing theology, and in the process they're quoting the Bible, including the New Testament. And there's this old story that goes back to a guy in, the I think, the 18th or 19th century who, who made this claim that he went through the church fathers and he was able to find you know, every verse of the New Testament except for something like eight verses. Then from there, the claim develops that we could reconstruct the entire New Testament text except for eight verses just from the church fathers. And you'll find this even in very, very well-known um, scholarly works by people like Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman. Um, but when you trace the story back, you find we don't actually have the details for that, and it's probably not really, it's not accurate. It's been, it's, but it's, it makes a great story, and it's kind of like the example with the canon and Nicaea. Um, it, go, it has this kind of historical pedigree that it does go back beyond just modern day, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like somebody just made it up yeah. out of whole cloth. Right. But when you do trace the story back to its origins, you find kind of more and more problems along the way. And at some point you realize, well, actually, there isn't really much substance here at all. Yeah. Now, the, the, the truth is the church fathers did cite the New Testament a lot, right? They really did. But it's not, it's not true that they cited every verse except for eight and that we could somehow reconstruct the New Testament just from those, right? That, right. that would be a bit difficult. It's been a little while since I've looked at all of the specifics, but books like Second and Third John, for example, I mean, they're hardly even referenced. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, and they're so tiny. I mean, you wouldn't yeah, expect, yeah. right? No, no, right. You wouldn't expect them you to, to expect make them, great but... use of these of these small, you know, short letters. Right. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, yeah, I have wondered. Like, they fly under the radar. But... Yeah, <laughs> within the first four centuries or yeah. so, there's hardly any verse citations of those no, books. No, there's yeah. not. No. And <laughs> yeah. same with yeah, same with some of the other what we call yeah. the Catholic letters, like yeah. Second Peter. Yeah, and Jude. definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. I'm learning all kinds of stuff. I know. <laughs> I feel like I mean, you know, at some level, it's kind of the early church had some of their favorite books, just like we do. I mean, when was the last time yeah. you heard a sermon yeah. on Third John that was like you wrote home about? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't mean to knock Third John, but you know, it's a real short book. Yeah, that's um, right. That's right. and so like. Matthew is by far the more more most popular of the, right. of the gospels that and John. Yep. Um, Definitely. But Matthew especially the synoptic gospels. You want to take a break? Yeah. Take us to the Sacred Words Conference <laughs> for 25 oh, <laughs> Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, Jesus Christ. These are all people that we would love to have on our show. In that order? Uh, let me start over. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start there. Uh, but no, seriously, we would love to get to interview more people. Obviously, we're really excited that we got to have the Texting Canon guys on today's episode, and we'd love to sit down with some more people that we could learn from and that we could pick their brains about things that they are experts in that we definitely are not. Absolutely. And all that being said, we want to hear from you guys. Who do you want us to talk to on this show? And likewise, what topics should we talk about with those people? 
for sure. If you have suggestions, reach out to us. You can do it through email at hello at bibleandstuff.com. You can DM us on any social media platform that you can find Bible and Stuff on. And you can call Glenn personally. I will give you his phone number. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great. All right, guys. Let us know. We're excited to do the show and love getting to hear what you guys think. So please reach out, inform us. And yeah, we're excited to hear from you. Okay, we are excited to be back and continue our conversation uh, with Dr. Peter Gurry and Dr. John Mead. Um, we are we just kind of finished talking about common misconceptions. Um, I I guess kind of a another question I wanted to ask is what are some of the most important things that Christians should know? Not necessarily what are the the miscommunications and sure. things like that, but if you were to pull a handful of things that you know what, this is important uh, for everybody to know. What what would you say that those things are? And I mean, you already touched on a little bit, like the idea of people sometimes wonder if we can trust our Bible. Um, well, let's start there with the most basic. I mean, John and I teach at a seminary, so it shouldn't surprise any of your listeners that yes, our answer, <laughs> our answer is yes, we think you can. You know, trust the Bible, we wouldn't bother to do this if we didn't, didn't believe that. But when it comes to why, and especially in terms of the questions of uh, text and canon that we deal with most in our, our research. Uh, I'll do New Testament, John. John, you can do, you can do sure. Old Testament or canon. You could switch if you want. We could yeah. switch. <laughs> that would be a different podcast. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so I think with the New Testament text, one of the things that that was so striking to me in my doctoral research was um, I worked with an edition that is a comparison of over 100 manuscripts for a certain part of the New Testament, and it was striking to me to really be confronted with the statistical evidence for just how much those manuscripts agree as a whole. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I had kind of imbibed this view from my own um, seminary and, and Bible school education that the later manuscripts were were not really worth much at all when it came to... Um, identifying the original text of the New Testament. And that view of mine began to change in my research because I was confronted with the statistics of just how good even those later manuscripts really are. So even if you can take a late manuscript and compare it with an early one, they still agree substantially overall. So, you know, you can have agreement of something like 90% of places where there's some difference in any any of the manuscripts, these two, the old one and the early one, still agree. You yeah. Know? So over 90%. That's pretty remarkable. That's so, yeah, so you're looking at, you know, maybe they may be a thousand years apart from each other, and yet they're, you know, over 90% in agreement with each other. So the idea that somehow what we have is the further we get away from the original, the the more different the text gets, that's just not true. Um, and we can we can demonstrate that statistically now thanks to, in part, thanks to computers. Yeah, so one of the big differences between New Testament t- textual criticism and Old Testament textual criticism is that... Jesus. Yeah, oh, well, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's, that's subject matter. Subject just kidding, matter. he's in the Old Testament. He's in the Old Testament. I that's right. <laughs> so... Um, well, what I was going to say is that it's, it's New, New Testament textual criticism is much further along in many ways. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, when, when, when Peter starts talking in terms of, like, statistics and, like, like word counts and these kinds of things, I, I, we don't have that kind John of... John gets jealous. Yeah. We, say, gets there, jealous. there is not that kind of data uh, for the Hebrew Bible. And there, there, even though there are stats thrown out there and this kind of thing, one, one of the reasons is uh, if you just were looking at Hebrew manuscripts outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. 
they're they're all dated like from the 10th century AD all the way up through like the late medieval period. Okay. Okay. Um, and there's a remarkable uniformity to the thousands of manuscripts from from that period that we're talking about. Uh, they all were done by the early what we call Masoretes or or preservers uh, of the tradition, and and later uh, medieval scribes, Jewish medieval scribes, simply copied from those texts. And so, pretty uniform situation. Um, and largely, our English translations, by the way, are based on on that on that tradition. Okay, uh, Enter the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and uh, and you've got like two hundred and twelve or so, 210, 212, depending on how you count things, uh, fragments of biblical books, okay? And, uh, and these scrolls, uh, in many cases, support that text, okay? So we're having 10th century A.D. to about, say, the 15th century A.D., right, for that yeah. first group. These are manuscripts dated roughly from 250 B.C. to about 130 A.D., hmm. okay? We can definitely we definitely know the end date uh, because this is when the Romans came in and kicked the Jews out of the land entirely, right? In what's called the Bar Kokhba rebellion around 132 A.D. Okay. It's all done, uh, but still, most most scholars are convinced that the scribal activity at Qumran began sometime in the middle of the third century B.C., so around 250. Okay. Is usually what they say. Okay. Well, these scrolls revealed uh, again, in large part, uh, the text of the later manuscripts. So, so say about a thousand year period or so uh, of copying shows that our earliest evidence agrees with our later evidence. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's pretty. That's pretty yeah. cool. Um, then, then there are some texts which definitely don't agree. Okay, and uh, so, so for example, uh, y there are texts of uh, Deuteronomy, like the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Uh, there uh, that that don't agree with the later, and hmm. uh, and you can actually see uh, the scribe in the first century BC uh, combining the reason for why you, the reasons for why you keep the Sabbath day from Exodus and Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy five, we keep the sab they they were commanded to keep the Sabbath holy because the Lord God led them out of Egypt. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in Exodus 20, they are commanded to keep the Sabbath day uh, because uh, on it, God rested, mm -hmm. right? Six days he worked, and on the seventh day he rested. Well, the scribe of a particular manuscript uh, from Qumran decided that uh, let's stack both reasons for huh. that Sabbath command, okay? So that looks like none of the Bibles we've ever read, right? Yeah, And so right. some, some have said, whoa, what's going on there? And they start to kind of, you know, read into this a lot. Like, scribes are being too fluid or, or too uh, too free, right? And they're copying. So how, how conservatively copied was the text? And, uh, and this kind of led to a lot of, I think, speculation. When you start to look a little beneath the service for this particular example you realize that the same text of that later period from the 10th century AD on is actually the same text of the earlier period. So in other words, if you remove that big harmonize, what we'll call harmonization yeah. or, or com combining of those two verses, if you remove that, you realize the vast bulk of this text reflects the, the manuscripts of the later period, which shows, right, that text must have been in existence yeah. when the scribe yeah. went about his secondary 
right, or later harmonizing of this text. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah. I was going to ask how do you deal with that, but that, yeah, <laughs> yeah that kind of answers the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think what's going on is that the technical term that will show up here is pluriformity, and that term is kind of whipped around to say, oh, see, there isn't a uniform text. All, all the ancient period knows is pluriform, hmm. and that is there is no one text. Uh, it's, it was kind of like... Uh, the result of the telephone game, so to speak, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and so 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 this group wound up with with text that read like that, and this group read with text that you know had two reasons for why they keep the Sabbath, you know this kind of thing. But it's not; it's really not so. Um, once you once we're able to step back and analyze these these scrolls a bit more seriously, I think what's going to happen is we're going to be able to recognize that there were some exegetical texts. That, that would not be considered the conservatively copied text. Yeah. Okay. But but texts that in people's minds um, were 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 illuminating the meaning or or exegeting it. Yeah. Uh, through har- through chiefly harmonization, there was there's a lot of examples of this now. Uh, but the fact is, there are many of those. Uh, but there are equally or a greater number of the conservatively copied texts. Yeah. Okay. So, so the more analysis and, and looking, really just slow looking at these, uh, I think is going to reveal that that conservatively copied text was already well established. Uh, the one that eventually became known as that, you know, standard text yeah. or whatever, it was already well established in the early period, and scribes simply uh, used it to create more popular type versions or, or exegetical versions. Yeah. Uh, it's almost it, like the ancient version of like a reference slash study Bible. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. So, and again, these are scrolls, right? Yeah. So, so later when our, when our book form is created, mm-hmm. you know, uh, scribes start to use margins for these kinds of things. Yeah. But in, we're talking about a period before that, that book even existed, and there's not really much use of margins, mm. so I do wonder how much just kind of was put in the in the main body of the text just because of a material, <laughs> like a material restriction, perhaps. Yeah, you know? that's so, that's really interesting. Yeah, 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 and there's a lot we could talk about there, but 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 I think that's kind of the biggest issue. But then I would I would just say on the other side, pluriformity is misleading if by that we mean the text was chaotic. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. that's misleading. Unfortunately, that's how Time Magazine picks up the term for <laughs> uniformity. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's usually how many university profs today pick it up. Um, but if you mean by pluriformity, yes, there are multiple forms of the text. True statement. Okay. But what does the deeper analysis reveal? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's I think that's the place where we're at now. I think that example also, uh, assuming John's analysis is right, right, that that combined form is is a combined form and not the source of the other two, right? Right. If that's true, that's a really good illustration of a principle um, in what John and I do, which is that the date of the manuscript doesn't always tell us the precise date of the text it has. So in other words, Mm -hmm. the date of the parchment or the scroll, right, the physical part of it, uh, Uh, may be early, uh, but we may have a later manuscript that actually has an even earlier text than that early manuscript. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So yeah. that's what that's what John's illustrating. Maybe the earliest copies of these texts of yeah. the Old Testament that we have are from the medieval period or the Dead Sea Scrolls. But we can be we can be actually pretty confident that in some cases uh, we can actually identify the, their textual form goes yes. back earlier. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. So it's you have to yeah. there's a couple things you gotta yeah. think through. 
So you touched on this earlier when you mentioned time and, and how they would look at that pluriformity of text. So long story short, that leads me to think, how would a everyday believer setting in their church, maybe even a new believer, that has people in their lives that they're having conversations with who don't see eye to eye on these things, where would they start? What could that look like for the normal person? I, th- I think one thing I would say is if a person has, que- if they're a new Christian, they have questions about text criticism, There's we'll recommend some things. Text criticism, though, is probably not the first thing that a new believer needs. I mean, there's a lot more that they need just for their basic faith, you know? They need yeah. to know more about who Jesus is. They need to learn how to pray. And You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We don't want to yeah. get the impression that text criticism is like the first fundamental no, thing that every new believer no. needs to learn. But your question is a really good one because oftentimes people, even if they learn just a little bit about text criticism, it can open a whole lot of questions from even just a little bit of information, right? And it can be really intimidating, especially if you have a conception of how we got the Bible is basically like, well, it's just always been in this leather-bound form with verses and chapters and exactly the same as your copy, right? And then you realize, well, wait, no, it's been translated, first of all. The verses were added by someone, so were the chapters. You know what I'm saying? Like, to realize, like, this is actually a product of of time and space uh, at some level. So where would we go, okay, for... For beginning resources, well, oh, <laughs> in a couple years, <laughs> John and I hope to, to write a, a basic book explaining this. Um, okay. We could we could share a book that um, one of our former profs here at Phoenix Seminary wrote called Paul Wegner. Yep. Yep. Uh, his book from text, text to, to translations, yep. yeah, from yep. text to translations has a lot of pictures in it, and it gives a lot of uh, a good book, a lot of detail, it's got a lot of pictures in it. It's, it's got, got a lot of pictures in it, a lot of tables and graphs. That's so right. It's, um, <laughs> So that gets a lot. There's a lot of books out there about how we got the Bible um, that are out there. I'm just trying to think of another one that's kind of a basic introduction. Ryan Reeves and Chuck Hill. No. Zondervan, Know How You Got Your Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's a very mm-hmm. kind of accessible... I think Greg Lanier also has a book called How We Got the Bible. How We Got the Bible. Of mine, yeah. So it's very short. Yep. Like yep. Awesome. 110 pages. Yeah, I think that's super helpful because it is something that I definitely not... Um, studied in this kind of thing i hear it coming up more and more the idea of textual criticism and it can seem very overwhelming like Mm -hmm. man i don't even know where to start right Mm -hmm. um everything you guys have said has been really interesting but it's i feel like two or three steps past where i would even know how to get there so having some good Mm -hmm. resources some good places to be like okay what would it even look like to dip my toe into this and have a better understanding and more confidence in the bible that i'm reading is super helpful the other thing we could recommend that i I always recommend anyway is um just start paying attention to the footnotes in your english bible that's a great place to start um your footnotes you may not know this but the footnotes in your english bible are a repository of probably the most difficult decisions that affect the interpretation or translation. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. Translators are almost always loath to use footnotes. They only use them when they have to. So that tells you that you're getting kind of the ones that are really most important. Yeah. Well, right? that's what I was going to yeah. ask next was, so if, when we're talking about today's English translations that we have, which translation do we go to? I mean, you guys are studying the original texts and things like that. Where do we see the most, Yeah. Uh, everything lining up the most? Or? Yeah, and of course... They have different functions. Some may be right. easier to read. Mm-hmm. Some may be a little right. um, more literal word-for-word translations. Definitely. But what yeah. what would you say is a good one for each? Yeah, so, wow. Well, let me start. Well, I think we can start. Well, let's clarify one misconception that sometimes is. Sometimes Go people think it. that each translation is from a different text. Mm. 
And usually that's not the case. Most of our modern English translations are actually translated from the same base texts. Yeah. They may disagree here and there, right? Because there are differences in the manuscripts and one will follow one. I'll give you one example that folks can look up. If you look up Mark 141 in the, the latest NIV, which was done in 2011, mm-hmm. you'll find Jesus getting angry. And in every other English Bible, you'll find him having compassion on the man with a withered hand. Okay, mm. That is a legitimate textual difference. The NIV translators have followed a different manuscript at that point. I think wrongly, but that's another podcast. Um, but that's but for the most part, translations are following the same basic Greek and Hebrew texts. Is that fair to say, John? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the the one exception there is the King James or the New King James, which in the New Testament follow a different base text. And there, if you actually if you have a New King James, it will mark every one of those uh, main differences in the footnotes there as well. Gotcha. So again, even those aren't hidden from you. Yeah. I was just, I tweeted on one not too long ago from 1 Samuel 2.27, um, which is a, a verse that talks about, you know, the, the man of God comes to Eli and, and says, you know, thus says the Lord, um, <clears throat> you know, basically, ha- has it, have I not surely revealed to the house of your father that when they were in Egypt belonging to the house of Pharaoh, okay, it would be a pretty literal translation of the Hebrew there. Um, but uh, a very popular English translation like the ESV has something like, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh. Huh. Um, and there's no footnote. Hmm. Uh, and it's definitely a textual issue. Uh, the ESV is following uh, the reading of, um, of the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, uh, which has like basically when they were slaves uh, in Egypt which is a text we know was harmonized to other places in, say, the book of Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. uh, because that's a very famous expression uh, when they were uh, slaves mm. in Egypt, right? And so, yeah. um, so the, the reading that doesn't have slaves, this is Text Criticism 101, is, is, <laughs> is probably going to be uh, the more original reading, you see, because it, it mm. is not as uh, great an explanation for it, you see, yeah. as, yeah. as along with it. Mm-hmm. And we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that the Septuagint text is, is secondary. But I was noticing that the, um, the uh, what is it, the CSB, so the, the Christian oh, yeah. Standard Bible, um, doesn't have any kind of equivalent for slaves or subject to. So just when, you, when they were in Egypt, uh, belonging to the, the house of Pharaoh. Huh. Uh, and so interestingly, the ESV actually has, has uh, not followed the Hebrew as closely mm. uh, <laughs> there. So, so I find them in the Old Testament, everywhere where i think most of our differences are actually not translational issues oh i see what you're saying yeah yes. many of them are actually because the translators chose different texts to translate <laughs> so so when you're in seminary do you to, mean when you say i'm sorry all over the place i mean a lot <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say i'll say this i'll say this but going you don't mean like every page no of course right, not okay. every page but but if you go to there is a project that you know was done in the 70s and 80s the the old testament uh text project um i mean they they did they did compile a collection of variants like five to six thousand mm. Uh, for translation committees, five to six thousand variants just in the Old Testament that affect translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which again, the Old Testament's a much bigger document than the New, right? right? Yeah. So, so that's spread over a lot of chapters and, and verses. But, yeah. but there are, and again, not many of them affect theology. No. Um, 
But there are some that will just affect the basic translation of the text. So for Old Testament, this is a, still a bigger deal, and I think mm. more needs to be done on this. So, yeah. We need, what we need is a text and canon institute, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's something that supports <laughs> academic excellence. I like yeah. that. I like that. <laughs> I think what, what John said is important, though, that so few of these variants affect theology. Yeah. Support, yeah. Like the that's example right. he just gave of what, what, what was that one? Yeah. Was it from? First Samuel two twenty seven. You know, I mean that's really interesting, but yeah. I don't think that's yeah. going to ruin anybody's sermon. No, for sure. Hopefully right. not. No. But, no. Yeah, and um, even like you mentioned you know, earlier, like the footnotes we see in our Bible, mm-hmm. sometimes they change the meaning, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking about one or two words in the context mm-hmm. of exactly. a whole section right. of yeah. the Bible, absolutely, it, it yeah. doesn't often in our day-to-day lives change everything. And the, that's the thing I always yeah. want to impress on people is Forever. if we think the Bible is God's Word, we want to care about each one of them, Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that every single word somehow rises to the level of, you know, right. our faith. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. or even our practice. So yeah. even the, the example of Jesus getting angry or having compassion in Mark one forty one, that's a significant difference. <laughs> but there is another, another place in Mark's gospel where he clearly gets angry and there's no variant. So it's not like yeah. a choice between whether Jesus ever gets angry or yeah. not, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, it's not even a question of whether he ever gets has compassion or not, because there's other places where he clearly has compassion, right? Even if that word is not used. For sure. So it's important to keep these things in perspective. They do matter. Right. Um, that choice, I think, really does matter, especially in that context. Mm-hmm. But it's not a choice between a different Jesus or not. Yeah. Like, well, an angry Jesus or a right. compassionate Jesus. Well, actually, yeah. it, d- depending on the setting, he can be either one, right? That's right. So yeah. it's important to keep these things in perspective. And I, I think my advice to people would be, um, if you don't have any access to Greek or Hebrew, well, come to seminary, obviously. But beyond <laughs> that, maybe pick a couple translations to use if you really want to dive into it. So, so take an ESV, yep. an NIV, and maybe a CS, CSB, yep. Christian Standard Bible, yep. and just start reading them closely in parallel to each other, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? And maybe throw in something like the NRSV if you right. want as well. Yeah, um, and with Bible apps today, I mean, that's super easy. It's super yeah. easy, right? Most of them right. you can put right. them side by side. Totally. You can you can get a really good feel for yep. those minor differences yep. in Indeed. places. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I also agree with you, Peter, that we probably do need a texting canon institute. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that's a good place to lead us into um, how can people stay up to date with what you guys are doing? How can people um, stay get involved? In touch? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll say a couple things, John. You can add any that you think of. Uh, sure. Main one is they can go to our website, which is ps.edu slash tci. So ps.edu slash tci. That's the main page for the Texan Canon Institute, and that has our upcoming events and some of our initiatives, and it also has a sign up for our newsletter. So we send out a newsletter about four times a year, something like that. Um, So that's probably the best way to make sure you're staying on top of things. You can also follow us on Twitter at Text and Canon, and then on Facebook, same thing, Text and Canon. Awesome. That's awesome. Guys. Four times a year. That's a, oh. that's the perfect newsletter to be that's on. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's perfect for us. Don't yeah, we're not going to inundate any inboxes with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, hey, if you come to the Sacred Words Conference, you get to see me and Glenn, which is, I mean, Oh, come there on. you go. And that's that's, that's, right. that's a real big draw. How, how will they identify you, though? Are you going to wear anything in particular? Like, now we need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Look for the red hats. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the guy with the bald guy. Well, guys, we're super excited that you were able to come on today, share your thoughts and your wisdom with us. Um, we really appreciate it. Tanner and I definitely learned a lot. Yeah. I think everybody listening learned a lot. Um, this is a huge help uh, and definitely lines up with what 
we're trying to accomplish here too. So. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So Great. go check out uh, what Dr. Mead and Dr. Gurry are doing over at Text and Canon. And as always, you can check us out at BibleAndStuff.com. You can see all the stuff we are putting out there. Um, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Yep, thanks guys. Bible and Stuff podcast is a production of Bible and Stuff. We do more than just podcasts, so if you want to know more about something we've covered on the show, just visit our website at bibleandstuff.com. Our show is hosted by Tanner Britt and Glenn Brand, and our theme music is by The Sing Team. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.